Welcome to a life. Uh, sorry. Welcome to Career in Ruins, where originality is key. <laughs> How you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, mate. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Pretty, pretty warm at the moment. Is yeah. another hot one? That's yeah, a, nice, nice mm, weather. Yeah, global warming. I think this booth needs some air conditioning. But it's good <laughs> to be back. Yes. Um, good week. <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Um, pretty productive week actually this week. Um, so as as we've said in in podcast pasts, I've been out in the field with students over the summer. Uh, doing a fairly large scale excavation on a medieval site and this week was quite nice because we got some carbon dates back ah. and it's kind of the thing I've been thinking about most this week if I'm honest because we've we, you spend kind of when you're out in the field as you know you spend a lot of time intimately in the excavation looking at the micro detail digging a pit or a ditch or a, a workshop or a, a salt working house but you get very focused and hung up on the detail and it's quite hard to step back and see the bigger story. But we got some dates back, which I don't want to go into too much detail until I've published them. But they, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> they give our, a site that you see it on the ground. And this is, this is one of the, the things about fieldwork, I guess. You see all of these features and structures on the ground and they're related spatially. You can see that one is there, one is between the two and there's there's a clear arrangement of structures but then you get the dates back and you realize there's 200 years between some of these, ah, these yes. buildings and it completely changes the story of the site so we were there for five weeks digging this site and we were developing this narrative of a, a salt working community with various workshops and features and structures we sent off six carbon dates is that the carbon date noise that is the carbon date noise, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we set off six carbon dates and with a bing, yeah. they, they yeah, came right. back. Like a toaster. And within seconds, you get a completely different story of the site. And it's remarkable just how quickly you then start to fill in the blanks and think, oh, well, that structure was the earliest. Oh, and there's been continuity to here. And the story, in within minutes of getting that email with the data attached, the story that we'd been developing for five or six weeks has suddenly changed. Uh. And... That's, I mean, that's, in this instance, that's happening over a fairly short time frame. That's a few months. But thinking about carbon dating generally and scientific dating generally, the impact that must have had on a whole understanding of the past, prehistory, archaeology, must have been profound. And I, was it Steve Trode? Yes, about yeah, how, yeah. How, Research with uh, carbon dating. Yeah, yeah. How, how he would be envious of that period. And I would certainly, I think, be envious of those those first few, particularly the nicely calibrated ones, where suddenly we see prehistory sp spiralling out into the past in front of us. And this, it, it's a very small instance, but it got me thinking about that. It's funny you should bring that up, actually, is because there's a really good, podcast out at the moment and the risk of sending people to other other places uh, bbc have received some funding from the arts and humanities research council i believe mm -hmm. and they've they've got jim leary and um penny bickle on yeah um, from york and penny does a fantastic job of explaining what carbon dating is how it works the mass behind it so i would recommend everyone to go and check that out i believe it's called new thinking 
Neolithic revelations. Excellent. And at the risk of sending more people to other places elsewhere, um, our good friend Archeoduck has also done an excellent video that talks through uh-huh. the, the science and the math behind carbon dating. There so I firmly recommend checking that one out if you're there interested. Plenty of cool stuff out there. So that's that's been my week. How about you, Lawrence? Well, um, I, mine's a bit random, but we've been doing the Festival of Archaeology this weekend. Yeah. And my colleague James Brown did a great job of organising a geophysics survey with a local archaeology society, the Avon Valley Archaeology Society at Rockbourne Roman Villa. And I only popped out for one day, um, which was this Sunday gone. And whilst driving up the Avon Valley, I was driving past the Sumney Estate, which is this huge estate, and they often have events on. I noticed they had event signs going and things like that. And they had security guards placed at certain entrance Mm. points to the estate. And just as I was driving around this small country lane, there was a security guard sat there on a gator, and he was napping. Yeah. (laughs) He he just stood there, blocking the entrance, napping a flint. Oh, not asleep. No, no, no. (laughs) Okay. I thought, world's worst security guard. (laughs) No, he was was flint napping. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Put a big smile on my face, and part of me wanted to stop and reverse and go and have a chat with him. But um, it got me thinking about throwaway archaeology. Mm. And having worked on Easter Island and the Cook Islands a couple of times... Have you worked on Easter Island and the Cook Islands? Did did I not mention that? Oh, Oh, good, good. Well, (laughs) having worked on them. Um, These are Stone Age societies Mm. that you're walking around the landscape maybe 800 years after they've happened or or as close to 100, 200 years after the Christian missionaries have arrived. Mm. So you can walk up a hill and find a freshly napped... um, or an area where napping has re- mm. had had taken place and all the distribution... Like a flint scatter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're walking around a British Neolith- Neolithic landscape, which is 5,000 years ago, mm. but only, what, up to 800 years after the, yeah, the, yeah. the activities happened. So, And all those discarded waste flakes, all that debutage is, is throwaway archaeology to a degree. And mm. it got me thinking about this chap that stood there, a bit bored, and he's there napping, he's trying away, his hand yeah. at napping. Might be an expert napper, will we, for yeah, all I yeah. know. But he stood in a ditch next to an entrance to a uh, <laughs> yeah. thing. That ditch is going to yeah, fill in. Yeah. And at some po- point, some poor schmuck is going to re-excavate that, <laughs> that ditch. And um, they'll be like, oh, well, we've got flint here. I mean, what, what is the cultural significance of a... Uh, Technology napping, crafting at the entranceway of sites. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see it. I can see the story being yeah. written now. And then I started thinking, and it sort of harps back to the episode we talked about the burning of rubbish. Yeah. And yeah. our modern archaeology, the archaeological mm. record being wiped clean through the destruction of that. And I was trying to think of things where we currently have a throwaway culture. Obviously, there's the plastics, mm-hmm. um, being in the plastic age, and um, all these other things, but things that aren't necessarily bad throwaway cultures that people will be looking at in a thousand, mm. two thousand, three thousand years' time, um, that might give an idea of our culture yeah. now. And I can't think of any. Oh, so sort of Casual throwaway culture, but good throwaway yeah, culture. Yeah. Like, so not like um, kebab wrappers near a kebab shop. No. Um, um, what production methods do we have now? Mm. I mean, there's, everyone spends their time on social media. And yeah, there's that, yeah. onla- that amazing online video about how certain early doors social media accounts are lost civilizations that archaeologists have found. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, pre 
MySpace. I suspect MySpace will be that there mm. soon. But actual physical things that we produce, it's too so large scale. Yeah. I can't think of anything that we do from day to day that would leave Ooh. a footprint. That's, I might leave that there. Yeah, yeah. And if anyone can think of anything, send us a message. Yeah, so you're not thinking about the the kind of macro stuff, like the microplastics or the, the kind of the huge scale environmental catastrophe stuff. No, everyday right. activities. But just a, a person getting up in the morning, going to work, and leaving things casually rather than in a structured rubbish mm. dump way. Cause and, uh, yeah, rubbish is an easy one. And we could say rubbish, litter, plastic bottles, yeah, McDonald's stri- wrappers. Stripping that away, so yeah. something that tells us a bit about the individual mm. and their life. Mm. That's an and interesting... they've got a skill or something like that. Yeah, that is an interesting point. Yeah, yeah I think if we can get people to, to write in, that would be quite fun. I yeah. say write in. What? How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> Tweet in, Facebook in, Instagram in. Thinking about... What you said a little bit more about your your napping, your not sleeping, your flint napping uh, man on an entranceway. It got me thinking a bit about Iron Age archaeology, mm-hmm. and we'll come back to some Iron Age stuff in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, um, there's there's a phenomenon a phenomenon in uh, Iron Age ar- yeah, <laughs> in Iron Age archaeology where there are often structured deposits or deposits of animal bones in the terminuses of ditches. Mm-hmm. And of course, where you have a terminus, you tend to have an entranceway. Mm-hmm. Um, ditches end entranceways begin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the, the entry point of an enclosure. And there's often a lot of interpretive weight put on these these structured deposits. Oh, uh, an articulated horse head or a cow head in an entranceway, it symbolises access, rites of passage, blah, 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 ritual things. Um, ritual. But if, if you were to take your, your napping person example, it could easily be that if you've been out hunting or if you've been outside of the enclosure, culling an animal, butchering an animal, it may be that that's the most convenient place before stepping into the clean area of the, the, the enclosure, the hill fort, the, the settlement area. You just chuck it at the most convenient point mm. and it happens to be the entranceway. Yeah. I suspect or you want to learn how to nap. Yeah. And you just, yeah. You, you, you're, yeah, you're, you're out gator, out. You're waiting away. for a deer to come. Yeah. Let's do some napping. Yeah. The sort of casual, the byproduct of other things. Yeah. And, and, and that's like, and obviously there's things throughout history of of that, but mm. wasters from pottery production or metal production. Yeah, and you, you often find things around glass production workshops where they've been practicing, mm. and you you see anomalous things that taken out of context. You'd think, oh, what is this ritual elephant that's been made out of glass? <laughs> but really, it's just someone practicing yeah. their art, practicing and their craft. I love craft. the the, the archaeology of practice, yeah. not the practice of archaeology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's lots to learn there. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yes, that's got our minds clear of things we want to talk about. It has, yeah. Um, before we move on to the interview, uh, we put a tweet out this week. We did. Along the lines of, so I, I'm trying to remember how this came about, but I think we're talking about underrepresented archaeological sites or sites that... Yeah. Not, I know how it came about. So on the way, obviously I mentioned about going to Rockborough Villa mm. and I was just chatting to people there and... So many people came to this Festival of Archaeology um, event, but they're all local, and they had no idea this amazing scheduled site where you could see the hypercourse, you can see at least two um, mosaics Mm. above ground, uh, beautiful plan of the site, lovely museum, all ran by volunteers, and none none of the people that came on the day knew it was there. So this got me thinking about underrepresented or underappreciated 
archaeological sites. Mm, sort of and archaeology on your doorstep. That's it, on your doorstep, but that you don't know about. So yeah, you know about yeah. your doorstep, you know about... Stonehenge. Yeah, yeah. That, that's not underrepresented archaeology, is it? No, that's, fact, the that's, a, that's a sort of centre point for British archaeology, yeah, you could say. That's it. So, um, so we put the tweet out saying uh, along along lines of um, if you have a site you feel deserves a shout out, send it over and we'll, and um, tell us why you think it's important, mm-hmm. um, and we'll do some form of archaeological top trumps. Yes, yeah. And I think this is something we should keep rolling for yeah. a, a few episodes. That's it. So what we'll, to, to Derek and I will che- basically put a tweet out every week and uh, who, you've got to throw your ideas at us. Derek and I will choose one we want to champion. And we had, some, we had a really good uptake um, from sites in America, Ireland, a few across Britain. And we've chosen two that were put forward for us. Yep. And now we're going to have a game of... What's that site? Unknown side chop trumps. Unknown That's easy for me to say. Um, so I've shuffled the deck. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and you're welcome to pull your card out first. So my site, and it's easy for me to say because I don't know how to pronounce it properly, is Chun Castle or Chun Castle. Okay, yeah. Um, it's a little accent above the U. Um, down in Penwith, I believe. In Cornwall. Yeah. In Cornwall, yeah, right on the tip of Cornwall. So southwest Britain. Yeah, very, very interesting site. It's a, well, it's called an Iron Age hill fort. Right. But, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a Wessex boy, as you know. Um, Hillforts to me are Maiden Castle, Badbury Rings, these massive multi-enclosure earthen ramparts. But as you get to Cornwall, Wales, the Atlantic coast, if you will, up into Scotland, Hillforts get quite different and there's a different style of Iron Age there. And this is much more circular in character than I'm used to as Hillforts. Um, it still has multiple entrance ways, but it's it's almost like a, a, a round or a raft. It's a, a circular stone-built enclosure with internal um, compartments and a, a well. It's got a well inside it, which is quite well, interesting. Well, well. Um, it was built 2,500 years ago. I'll save that bit. It was built in the Iron Age. Um, <laughs> And possibly occupied later um, in the first, second century AD to protect tin resources in a very metal-rich area, which was a surprise to me. Not a surprise, but when I picked the site, it wasn't for that. But actually, it's a site that I could find quite interesting from my own research perspective. So that was a site that was sent in by Laura Burnett. That's the one, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely fascinating site, and I I love it. There's lots of stories we can chat about. We'll get the top trump cards out soon. I fear you've done better research than I have, so I (laughs) apologise to the person that of the site that I've chosen. Which have you chosen? Uh, My site was put forward by Andrew Ward, Mm -hmm. uh, and he chose. Let me get my uh, my pronunciation right. Caro Keel. Why not? Um, Caro Keel Megalithic Cemetery. So this is a um, chambered passage tomb cluster in um, County Sligo in mm-hmm. the island of Ireland. And um, so we're talking about Neolithic chambered tombs. Wonderful. And they are the most beautiful things I've seen in a long, long time. I had no idea these oh, sites really? existed. Um, if you were to look at them, they'd almost look like piles of um, throwaway waste from a quarry site yeah, or something yeah. like that. Um, you've got this lovely green landscape hill, rolling hills, and then loads of tiny little rocks piled off on top of each other. They're huge. They've got lovely, great, big gaping entrances. They're Neolithic, as I say, um, and they are actually cl- class of one of the big four passage tombs, cemetery in Ireland, wow. along with, let me think about these names again, I think it's 
Carrowmore, um, Bruna Bonnie. Bruno mm-hmm. Bonnie? Yeah. Um, At least one of those is a trainer make, but Carrowmore. <laughs> <laughs> and Loft Crew. Oh, yeah. But, um, and it's just incredible. It's, it's the most amazingly intact site mm. um, and amazing views. And there's been a number of excavations uh, or investigations across the years, but um, I'd recommend everyone go and research them better than I have done. Fantastic. But, so shall we play a game of Top Trump? Well, that's it. So what, what we've done in the meantime is actually create Top, Crunt, top Trump cards. And we'll be sticking these on our social media. They go media. on social media, yeah. and every week as we play, um, what was it? We need to come up with a good name for it, but... Archeo um, Trumps. No. Uh, what, monument, monument Trumps? Mon, monu Trumps? Mon, Trumpiments? No. Trumpiments. <laughs> this week on Trumpiments is... Um, so Top Humps, no. <laughs> well, we've got Chin Castle, Chin Castle and Carrow Keel. All so, right, so do you want to call first? Okay, well, I'm going to go with age. Okay, okay. So... 5,500 years. Oh, 2,500 for me. Ah, uh, that's a win. I suppose by top trump rules, kill. you win. Yeah. Yo. Older, <laughs> so I'm going to go for um, access. access. So how accessible is it to the general public? Okay. And I'm 100. 100. Why is that? Because there's a car park nearby. <laughs> Good. Good. So I'm, I'm on 98. Ooh. So there is a car park nearby, but you have to walk quite a way. Okay, so it's pretty close there. So yeah, they're accessible. So if these are on your doorstep, do you go and have a look. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you're up next again, then, as a winner. Ah, so distance from Stonehenge, which is an important consideration. Because it's the most... Well, Stonehenge being the most looked yeah, at monument, yeah. and so we're this looking is, at overlooked yeah, monuments. Yeah, so distance enough. from Stonehenge. So 203 for me. <sighs> Mug. I'm on 510. Uh, whatever, so whatever. That's, that's a 2-1 victory for Carol Keel. So. You see, if I'd known that was a characteristic, I'm going to Southern Hemisphere <laughs> next time. <laughs> it's going to be nominated, so oh, jokes okay. on you. Uh, whatever, uh, whatever. But, um, yeah, that's the end of it, this uh, feature of... So what's almost the end? What's, what's the favourite thing about your your this week's topument? Your topument. For me, it's the level of preservation. Mm. Um, you've got these amazing um, lintels in, that survive going into Fantastic. the entrance of the site, and the as I say, the, the, the sites stand out like a sore thumb looking at them from afar as these um, bouldery, gravelly mm. mounds that they're obviously unnatural, but to think that they're five and a half thousand years old as opposed to a couple of hundred, maybe even four hundred years old, is spectacular. So the level of preservation for site that's so old and important. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've, got, I've got a lot of time for. Superb. So mine is that it's got a well. It's got a well. And in in the context of British archaeology, and you, I suspect you'll have found this as well, whenever you work on a site in the UK and you have an open day and you get visitors out, a question that comes up every time is, where'd they get their water from? <laughs> and a, as if it would be sort of so complicated for a for a community in the past who can sort of smelt metal or, or forge things. <laughs> or, or dig, uh, get enough people to dig Yeah, a dig, dig a massive hill fort <laughs> with hundreds of people and, and, and sort of a huge labour force to, I don't know, carry some water from a river up a hill. <laughs> but it's a question that comes up so frequently, particularly on hill forts and Iron Age sites. So to have one with clear evidence of a well it's quite nice it's I, mean, I don't mean to boast but mine guy, my guys didn't need a well because because they're dead dead so <laughs> probably makes mine even better fair enough, fair <laughs> enough in that case I think do you win this week's top trumps or yeah 2-1 th- fair enough
one nil overall. Okay, so who have we got this week? What's our uh, this week? We have got Professor Colin Richards. So this is one of the few interviews I did whilst I was at the Cook Islands. Sorry, on the Cook Islands. Did I okay. not tell you? I was at the Cook Islands. <laughs> um, but Colin is an absolute trooper. He's, a, he's an absolute character. Um, an amazing career, a completely different approach to getting into archaeology. Okay. Probably the most different we've seen so far. Fantastic. Um, Looking forward to that. From TV repairman to <laughs> professor of archaeology at the University of Highlands and Islands. Wow. So I suggest we dive in and we'll have a chat halfway through. Yep. Colin, welcome to Career in Ruins. Thank you very much. Um, we're here in Rarotonga in Polynesia. We've been here for about a week now, haven't we? We have. We have been looking at some of the heritage out here, the Polynesian archaeology. Um, but I thought if you could, could you start off by just giving us a bit of a background about how you've got to where you are in your career today, where you started from, what got you interested, and, um, and some of the, the things you've done along the way. How I started in archaeology, mm. um, I suppose I had an, always had an interest in the past. When I was a kid, I was taken around to castles and ancient monuments, mm -hmm. um, but uh, never thought about it as a career, mm. and so uh, just did various things and ended up doing electronics and was a television engineer. How long were you doing that for? Altogether, eight years. Okay. And uh, and the reason I actually came to archaeology was one of my friends who I worked with. Mm -hmm. His marriage split up. Right. And he was out drinking. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, he suggested that we went to college. Right. So we went off to college of an evening. How old were you at this point? About twenty-four. Twenty-four. And uh, and they had the usual sort of different uh, O levels and things I'd done at school, which weren't very attractive. But there was archaeology, and so thought, oh, this would be a, a good option. So we both did O level archaeology. And when that course finished, we both wanted to carry on, but they didn't offer an A level, so we decided to do it ourselves. Okay, in what, how did you, in what way? What do you mean by that? Well, you, can, uh, you could just send away for uh, exam papers and the, the course layout and, and just register. Right. And we had a couple of people who, were, who marked our, or looked at our essays. Mm. And it was whilst I was doing that, the Wessex unit came to Salisbury, which is where I lived. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also, one of the people I worked with, he was doing an open university degree, and uh, the people in West, the Wessex unit, particularly Julian Richards, was saying, oh, well, if you want to work in archaeology, you need a degree. Mm -hmm. And the chap who was doing the open university degree said, you're quite capable of doing a degree, because I thought, oh, only smart people go to university. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went... We'll keep going, we'll give it, uh, hopefully it'll be okay. Anyway, I got a place at Reading. Right. Which was really good, actually, because I'd been rejected 
from Exeter and Southampton very quickly. So quickly I was allowed to reapply, so not through clearing. And, uh, and by sheer good fortune, because uh, I, was, I was quite interested in the Neolithic. In fact, I'd found, when I first started doing the O-level, I found it quite boring. But then we got to the Neolithic, and when I was repairing televisions, my patch was north of Salisbury, so I used to drive through Durrington Walls every yeah. day without realising it was there. Oh, well, you didn't even... OK. And uh, so when I, I was amazed, I was amazed at the scale of monuments. I was a bit underwhelmed with Stonehenge, but Durrington really caught my imagination. So, ending up at Reading, it was a fantastic department. There were some really good people. It was quite small at the time, mm. but they were really good. So by sheer good fortune, I ended up particularly being taught by Richard Bradley and Bob Chapman. And uh, did my first degree there. Did a PhD in Glasgow mm-hmm. on Neolithic Orkney. And whilst doing the PhD, discovered a settlement called Barn House and managed to get some money from historic... In- well, at the time, I can't remember what their name was, but basically Historic Environment Scotland. You mentioned uh, Julian Richard suggested you do a degree. Had yes. you been working for Wessex, or how did that come about? Um, well, I did my level project on four sites, Woodhenge, Stonehenge, Durrington Walls, and Coneybury, which at that time was just a crop mark. Right. And so as part of the A-level, I gridded it out and did field walking. Hmm and found, I think it was about 30 flints. A Wessex unit re-walked it and found like 200. <laughs> so, but it's all a learning process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's what um, took me in the first place. Yeah. So you, you got your PhD and did that, how, what, what sort of springboard did that provide? Well, because I was uh, caught up in doing the excavations, because the I had no idea what this flint scatter was, but it, t- it turned into a whole Neolithic village, basically. That's Barnhouse. That's Barnhouse. Mm-hmm. And so I got a bit distracted from PhD, although it was obviously going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, then, before I'd actually got my PhD, I had a fellowship, is that right? It must have been, and started teaching at Glasgow. Okay. So that's when I started lecturing in about 1992. 1992. So how long are you? What, what, how long a process is this? We're we talking. You, you said you started looking at archaeology at the age of 24. Well, that was. I went to university in 1980. Mm-hmm. Finished at Reading in 1983. Started at Glasgow in 1983, mm-hmm. and started teaching in 1992. Okay. So quite a long time to do a PhD. Of course, that's all changed now. Probably for the better. I must confess. But, um, yeah, so I taught at Glasgow through to 2000 and then went to Manchester till 2016 and then moved 2017 to University of Highlands and Islands. Which is where you are now. Which is where I am now. Okay. And, I mean, that's, that's, so that's Glasgow, um, Manchester and University of Highlands and Islands. Um, presumably you've worked on quite a few projects in that time and done quite a bit of research in a number of areas. Yes, yes. Um, lots of work in Orkney and sev- several projects there. A project I really enjoyed was looking at stone circles and their construction. Mm-hmm. 
um, which we also worked at Callanish in, in uh, Lewis, and that was really good. And it was whilst I was there, uh, lolling on the beach, and I just happened to have this book that I got from a second-hand shop called Aku Aku by Tor Heyerdahl, and it was about work on Easter Island. And the work we were doing with the stone circles was looking at their constitution, their geological constitution, and, and looking at where the stone was coming from, the quarries. And of course, reading this book, that's exactly what was on Rafa Nui, on Easter Island. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to do a project there? So a couple of years later, myself and Sue Hamilton went across and um, did the groundwork and started a project there around 2008. Okay. So, and that ran through to about 2014 and really falling in love with Polynesian archaeology and also getting very interested in Polynesian roads of all things. Mm. Basically because roads structure the way in which landscape is, is sort of constituted I suppose and how you encounter it, what you encounter. So it's a it's a really interesting way of actually seeing how people order space and, and so on. And one of the most famous roads in Polynesia was the uh, Aramatua here in, in Rarotonga. So it was a really good paper written by Matt Campbell in 2006 in Antiquity, which I thought was a very, very enticing paper. And that's really what brought us here. Mm -hmm. We started here three years ago. So you were you working Rapa Nui? You were there for five years, six years? Yeah, I suppose from the time we started to finish, nearly ten years. Ten years. And what what sort of things did you we research or discover? We we uh, mainly worked at the quarry where the top knots, the Pukau, came from, because believe it or not, no work had been done there. Mm. So we excavated there, and. Uh, and lo and behold, found roads running in and running out, and uh, realised that the Pukau, which were these quarries, both Ranuraku, where the statues come from, and Punapau, where the top knots come from, have well, with Ranuraku, we know there's roads radiating out from that, and they're kind of dendritic, they separate and go across the island. And um, the same thing's true at Punapau. Now along the roads as you approach Ranuraku there's fallen statues which were thought to be in transit mm -hmm. and just abandoned. Of course they weren't at all, they were actually set up on platforms. So we did geophysics and so on, found located the platforms. Realised that what was happening was this, the, the statues were basically grading space. So as you got closer to the, the quarries they increased in frequency and number and uh, the same things happens at Punapau, except there's top knots laid down. So we found the road running past, and a uh, beautiful polished obsidian adds place next to one. It's an extraordinary place to work. It's amazing archaeology, actually. <laughs> I mean, I, I, having worked with you a couple of, for a couple of years on that site, I can, or well, not that, well, Punapau in particular, and then a little bit of Ranu, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, I couldn't agree more. It's a pretty special location, but the Cook Islands are proving equally as interesting as well at the moment. Um, I, but we, I first met you, uh, whether you know it or not, was um, on the Stonehenge Riverside project, 
and that you were working on that with Kate Wellham and Mike Park Pearson and a number of other people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got to know Mike, um, who's probably one of my best pals in archaeology, actually. When I was in the first year at Reading, I went to TAG. This is the, the thing to remember is that um, when I did my degree, as well, this post-processional archaeology was taking off. So it made it a really exciting time. It was just great fun. Tags were great fun. Mm. So I got to know Mike. He was just starting his PhD at Cambridge. And we've kind of been pals since. And um, as we all know, Mike's obsessed with Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just started, just literally it was just going to be Mike and myself, looking to see if there was an avenue running from Durrington to the Avon because he had this scheme where it's Stonehenge for the ancestors and so on and so on. And, uh, and then we realised to do the sort of work we wanted to and how the project could develop, we just couldn't do it on our own. So uh, Josh Pollard, Chris Tilly, Julian Thomas, all, so we were all basically co-directors. Although I did all the work, he did all the organisation, <laughs> in all fairness. <laughs> But that was that was amazing. That was amazing, and uh, it for me it was quite strange because I did my O level dissertation on Durrington Wars. I did my A level dissertation on these other sites, including Durrington Wars. I did my undergraduate dissertation on Durrington Wars and the the, uh, the way in which material was deposited there, and that turned into the structured deposition paper I did with Julian Thomas which was probably, you know, one of the most cited papers in the Neolithic anyway, mm. structured deposition. So, I mean, that was just amazing how that had, you know, when you do something like that, you know, it's really quite good in terms of career because people invite you to conferences, you get to know people and so on. So doing that at that time was really good. But strangely enough, because I've worked in the North so much, in Orkney in particular, and then I would work at Calamish. Coming back down to work at Stonehenge was, you know, I wouldn't say, how can I say this? The Hebrides and Orkney are so wonderful in many ways, you know. Coming down to Salisbury Plain <laughs> with all the military helicopters flying over all the time. It was a strange experience. And, uh, and I'd found that actually, although I'd, I'd really loved Durrington Wars, I wasn't quite so fond of it. <laughs> so my part of the project was very much looking at stones and standing stones and the sarsens and so on, whereas Julian worked mainly in, in Durrington. Mm. There's so much to pick up on there. I should, I should start, really, by saying that we, we did that interview on the balcony of our house that we're staying in and the house ran along the main road. I was going to congratulate you actually for, for your choice of sound effects considering <laughs> how often you were talking about roads and connectivity and roads being ways in the landscape <laughs> to, to, to get that soundtrack in the background was, was very well done. Well the joke's on you because actually what I've managed to master is to make car noises, gecko noises cricket noises. <laughs> yeah the police academy uh, style. Yeah 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 so yeah. there's me going so trolling Trolling the, the whole yeah, time. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, this. Oh, I don't know where to start. Um, with something that kept springing out during that interview, and it, it was, it was almost names. It was names of people, and it reminds me almost of our 
one of our first podcasts with Christian Horn, where mm-hmm. he was talking about the, the kind of the senior archaeologists in the discipline and how wonderful it would be to work with them and how when he kind of grows up, that's what he wants to be like, just a, a, a nice guy who does good work or yeah. a nice person that does good work. And there are so many names in that, Julian Richards, Julian Thomas, uh, Mike Parker Pearson, Richard Bradley, who, when we were undergraduates, were kind of core texts, mm. and we would we would study their work, study these seminal pieces like structure deposition in the Neolithic. It was it was on our reading lists. And That's it. Well, and it's, we've we've already talked about that paper mm. in previous podcasts. Exactly, so, yeah, and yeah. it's it's just it's it's so interesting to hear the the stories of of these names of these people who we're we're so familiar with their names and their work and in a way they sound a bit like us um like um oh of course i did all the work that's exactly what i would say (laughs) talking about you (laughs) (laughs) it's just wonderful yeah working with his best mate yeah mike and yeah uh, i think there's a lot to be said for that yeah Uh, agree project work where you can be around people you you get on with your friends with and you Mm. can kind of enjoy the the work times and the fun times around it absolutely and what i like as i mentioned before we went into the interview is his his access into the what yeah what a a track into archaeology i'm guessing straight out of high school into work yeah i mean almost 16 into work, eight years of work, then into That's college, O levels, A levels. No, but yeah, O levels, A levels, but that made, made the O levels themselves. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So I want to be an archaeologist, there's no way to study it. I'll just I'll just make make it up. It's fine. <laughs> no, it's incredible to kind of to have that focus and that that direction that it wasn't there, so he made it work and he made it happen. And that that's fantastic. Very convoluted, but also just brilliant. I I'm not sure if it's Something that would be adopted in our day and age. I mean, we've had a chat about before about how things just have to happen quickly. You do your degree, you do your yeah. It seems to be a huge urgency, and I don't know if it's perspective because we're in it and we're Mm. we're kind of going through that. But hearing the kind of story of oh no no, then I took six or seven years over my PhD and got my first job in '92. I kind of thinking, God, I, I. I'd feel bad if I don't get a promotion next year. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm sort of anxiously yeah. pushing forward. And but in the meantime, <laughs> Colin has secured funding from Historic Scotland. Yeah, what yeah. is now Historic Scotland? Oh, God, how many yeah. how many people of our peers go out looking for funding? I mean, like even that? as your sort of A level, O level projects going out and doing field working, field walking surveys, even if you miss most of the artifacts. I mean, mm. that's, that's by the yeah. by. Thirty versus two fifty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, all, it's all arithmetic. Um, but it harks back as, a bit as well to our conversation about missing sites or hidden sites, sites that don't get the attention they necessarily deserve. And as Colin was saying, when he was a, a TV repair person, he was driving past Darrington Walls, which was, was the <laughs> site he'd revisit years Absolutely. later, but had no idea it was there. And I just wonder how many of our listeners and sort of how many of the general public drive by or go by archaeological sites every day and don't know. That yeah, exactly. I I'm not sure we can add Darrington Walls to Monument Trumps, though. Oh, it'd it be fun. It's, it's not overlooked. Though. Bit too close to Stonehenge as well. Yeah, well, that's going to Distance from Stonehenge too. <laughs> um, it's an important too, though. <laughs> but and but also discovering such an amazing site as part of his PhD, this Barnhouse site, yeah, which yeah. was initially a spread of flints or artifacts, probably a bit more than thirty, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. But, um, um, 
you can kind of understand why his PhD took a bit longer because you, mm. if you were to just go, I, I'd recommend all our listeners to go and research Barnhouse. Yeah, yeah, incredible. But if you were to discover that, that, that would take up a bit of your time. <laughs> There's an element as well um, that really appealed to me in, in that conversation, and we've we've alluded to it quite a lot on the podcast. Is that not? Well, I suppose being an expert generalist, but the ability to take what you're doing and apply it to some a very different context. So to be studying stone circles and then see that there are similar themes and issues in Polynesia and mm. saying, OK, I'm going to go and study those. Mm. And that, that transferability of specialism, of skills, of knowledge is a, a fantastic thing. And I think a lot of the people who seem to be successful in archaeology have learned that quite early on and it's it's something i suppose a transition you and i are, are going through at the moment and that we we have our specialisms yeah we're either in the midst of doing a phd or recently done a phd and we've we've been focusing very closely in on something but then taking a step back and saying this skill set i've got this this thematic knowledge I've got doesn't just have to be applied to some crusty old slag from Eurasia. I can go and look at urbanisation in ancient Greece yeah. and apply similar themes and ideas. And it's it's that that sort of almost confidence in your your skill set and your your way of thinking that really came across there. And I quite like hearing that in someone who's so established, yeah. and so so sort of sure about their career well, that's it. and the, the interesting point of that as well is uh, as someone that's so established and has such a rich career and fantastic publication record and amazing projects um he, he said that his initial thoughts were only smart people went to university <laughs> yeah there was an element there that i really enjoyed yeah people. and i mean if if someone was of such a high caliber as colin mm. can come into it from that point of view um I don't think anyone should be put off coming into the discipline or whether it's any any course at university, let alone archaeology. But um, uh, uh, it's fair to say, you won't mind me saying this as well, we're we're both pretty dyslexic. I was say, if we were to play top trumps with our A-level and GCSE schools, I imagine it'd be quite depressing. (laughs) That's it. Let's not do that. But uh, yeah, this archaeology is so applied in everything it does in terms of science, in terms of humanities, in terms of sociology, economics, all of the... The, the the themes that bubble under the core of archaeology to help you be an archaeologist. If you were to do any of those, or if I was to do any of those alone, I'd struggle. But mm. doing it within that sort of that applied sense of asking a question with it, I can yeah. suddenly find it really accessible and easy. Uh, but also not the, easy, but the variety of you, you can be highly academic and do the reading and do the research, mm. or you can be quite practical and have that yeah. informed based on a bit of reading and research, or you can you can do the excavation based on scientific mm. excavation and excavation techniques. Um, you can specialise in bones, and th- that's what we're seeing throughout our podcast now. There is, it's such a broad church, there are so many things you can specialise in. So not being great at reading, writing, or just being generally mm. a smart person in inverted Yeah, commas. there's room for creativity, there's room for other types of brain, and I love that about the mm, subject. Yeah. You, you encounter all sorts. Absolutely. It's perfect. So I'm quite intrigued to hear what happens next. Yeah, let's let's hear the second half. Um, so as part of the podcast, we have three main questions that we ask participants. So, And the first one is, is there a piece of work that you've done in the last X number of years that you're particularly proud of? If so, could you give us a bit of a background into it? Well, I, I suppose finding a big Neolithic village when you're a postgraduate is pretty good fortune. Um, 
I've kind of enjoyed all of it, and I, I'm kind of. I think when we started working in Auckland, there were a handful of settlements known as Bray on one island. There wasn't really any other settlements known on that island, and and over the years we found so many of them and excavated so many and published so many. And you know now of course there's the Nessa Brodgar, which is just a stone throw from Barnhouse. Mm-hmm. We've never believed a big settlement was on the other side of the, the bridge, basically. Um, one of the projects I've really enjoyed, obviously the Pacific, because I, you know, one of the things for me was I read a book called Coral Island when I was a kid, and so from that point on, the South Pacific, South Pacific was the exotic. Um, but the project I really enjoyed doing besides all these things is the work I've been doing with Vicky Cummings on Dolman mm-hmm. I've really enjoyed that project I mean that's taken us to all, all different parts of Ireland and Denmark and Brittany for those people that don't know what Dolmen are if you just list. well these are early Neolithic monuments and they're, they're these big slabs which are supported on, on two big stones at the front and sometimes there's several more at the back or maybe there's just one or two like big tripod, big tables, mm-hmm. massive stones. The biggest one is Brands Hill in Ireland. It's 160 tons of the capstone. So that's that's been really good. I suppose if you know, if I was to say anything about archaeology, it takes you to the most amazing places mm. you'd never normally go. Mm. So I've been kind of quite lucky the projects involved in. So I guess Dol- the Dolman. Project, yeah. really, I okay. think. Is that so? That's is that something you're still working on, or? Yes, we've got to finish the monograph this this year. Okay, so, so keep your more. eyes peeled for that monograph. <laughs> okay, so the next question: Whilst you, you're particularly proud of that, is there a project that, or a piece of work that you've observed, or and you've particularly admired or been envious of that you'd wish you'd been part of? Envious. Um, I don't know. I'm not. I, I mean, perhaps envious is the wrong word, but, but something that you've read and gone, that's fantastic, but you've not personally been involved with. Well, I suppose, yeah, I mean, there's lots of obvious ones, isn't there? Running from Chateau de Europe to digging naps in Ireland. Mm. One of the projects I always really, really liked was the megalithic project they did in Denmark. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, I don't know when it was, it's quite a while ago now, 20 odd years ago maybe. Where they were rebuild, they were dismantling and rebuilding the passage graves. Right. Um, Sven Hansen was uh, Torben Den were involved in that, and I was going to work with them, but their funding dried up. And what was so amazing about that is they they took these these monuments basically apart and saw exactly how they were constructed, and finding all sorts of unusual elements about them. And not least, realising that the actual uh, chambers and so on were created by splitting stones and pulling them apart. Twins, as Sven would call them. I mean, that, there's so many good projects. Mm. That, you know, you think, oh, that would have been great to do. So, I do, yeah, that's, that's, that. that's a good one. Process. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so the, the final question, uh, uh, we'll, you'll be finished soon. But um, Derek and I have actually built a working time machine. And uh, everyone that comes, everyone that comes on to the podcast gets a free ticket, a return ticket um, on the time machine. So um, all we need to know from you is where you'd like to go. Oh, the rain started. <laughs> where you'd like to? We might need to talk a bit louder. Where you'd like to go, 
and um, why you'd like to go there and we'll just put, we'll give you the ticket and you're off um, do you know what I think this, I think strangely enough I'd, I'd give you a ticket back really? yeah because the thing for me is that um, it's that well first of all it's the fact that the past is so alien and different and the fun for me and for I'm sure many other archaeologists is interpreting that you know it's all about interpretation it's all about creativity and I don't know I think that would kind of well not spoil it but that would defeat the object the object of archaeology in a way <laughs> so I think I don't think I would want to particularly go back no that's fine you can return it we, we don't do cash refunds though I'm afraid it's just well, maybe I could just trade it or sell it. <laughs> we do, like, I've got a lovely shell we can trade <laughs> it. <laughs> but, yeah, I, th- I just think, you know, it's that, that is the stuff of archaeology, is, is interpreting and uh, recreating. So, you wouldn't need to do that, would you? No. But if you sort of went back to the Neolithic, you'd probably get an arrow in you anyway. <laughs> so no, be it's fine first. because um, the, the machine makes you... Um, you, you can't die you're, not, you're, you're invisible you don't influence we have had people trying to smuggle Neanderthals back uh, oh right but okay. um, it, it's just to observe more than anything well I suppose uh, one of the things I always used to used to think was oh wouldn't it be great to go back and say into in Orkney go back and just stand and look at all the different trails of smoke coming from the villages around because you have no idea where they were how many there are of them of course now we've got a fair idea but there's tons of them mm. and so it's really densely populated and they're all contemporary I suppose no maybe I would take the ticket actually and see how they managed to drag the Grand Menhir Brise seven kilometres weighing 320 tonnes where's that site? Oh, that's Brittany Brittany yeah okay but I yeah I, I, I so you don't have to tell anyone what you've seen you can just keep it there and Allow it to inform your interpretations going forwards. Well, I might look at that. Okay. I might look at that. That's a good choice. Colin, thank you for joining us today. Uh, hopefully everyone could hear what we said over the motorbikes and the rain. But um, thank you very much. Thank you, Lawrence. So that's two weeks in a row now where... We've had guests who tear apart the very notion of the time machine. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, Chris highlights its slight flaws, a few flaws last week. And then this week... Yeah, no, I just, I just don't want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for no thanks. It's all about the fun. (laughs) I kind of get that, though. I know you can't really compare the two, really, but um, the last few years I've been very fortunate in terms of fieldwork in that I do some geophysics and I've been fortunate to then subsequently excavate and when we were doing it for the field school it was quite terrifying actually where I'd, I'd got this geophysical plot and in my mind I knew what it was I'd, I'd planned out these this small hamlet of houses mm. and suddenly the, the machine starts stripping back the topsoil and you think 
I'm about to be either proved right or proved wrong. It's the, the time machine effect. It's, it's yeah, coming out. And I've yeah. got it again this summer. I'm going to um, a site I visited last year, uh, Hermione in Greece, where I did some geophysical survey. And I am convinced I saw some structures and some walls and some features. And there's a chance this year they're going to excavate one of those areas. Oh. And again, it's, it's that great... I've, I've had a whale of a year interpreting it and saying, ah, oh, it's a structure around a well. Wonderful. Oh, isn't it brilliant? And... I get to use my time machine of digging a hole to <laughs> to prove myself right or wrong. So it's, it's quite scary. And mm. the idea of spending your life working on a site and then actually going back and seeing that it was just a, a guy having a nap in a van. <laughs> um, it's, it is terrifying. And I get yeah. that. I get that. Yeah. I, I, I th- and I, Colin's absolutely right as to why our discipline is so special. And the interpretation and the creativity around it. We could do without time machines, I think. brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, educated guesses is a term I throw around now and again. Mm. But And that perhaps makes it sound worse than it is, but uh, until we've got a time machine or... Evidence-driven interpretation. Yeah, yeah, that one, Educated yeah, guesses. Until we've got a time machine or unless you're in the historic period where, like Steve Fisher, when we've got all the mm. re- written records that tell us exactly... Even so, with that, there were some, some, some questions. Gaps. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So, um, yeah... He's absolutely right, and mm. it, it sparks imagination and interest and enthusiasm and drives our discipline, so I can understand where he's coming from. That said, we'll be back with the time team, time team, <laughs> with the time machine, Freudian slip, next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what else caught you in that interview? There's um, a lot to, lot to say. He, he talks about... Um, I. I it, it runs in with this idea of interpretation and creativity. He talks about reading the book Coral Island yeah, yeah. and um, how that shaped his interest for Southern Polynesia and his enthusiasm mm. and the exotic. And I, I wonder whether there was a book that helped, that you remember reading as a youngster. Because certainly there's oh. one book that I absolutely loved reading as a youngster. Not, not necessarily archaeology related, but I'll come on to that. Uh, not so much, really. I mean... My, my favourite books when I was growing up were the Hitchhiker's Guide books. So yeah. I, was, I was much more about the sci-fi yeah, and the yeah, space yeah. travel. But it, it, it did make me think about our, our mutual friend Robin, who we will at some point interview on this podcast. <laughs> I've tried twice now and failed twice because we of were drunk twice. weather conditions, <laughs> wind and alcohol intolerance. Um, but he, he, he fell in love with a book, by, or a book about Jacques Cousteau and his adventures diving on the Antikythera wreck and that inspired him or partly inspired him to go into archaeology. But no, I don't, I don't really have a, an archaeology or a historical related book in my history mm-hmm. in that sense. But what about you? My Not history or archaeological, mm. but Day of the Triffids. Okay. Just the best book ever reading. <laughs> and I think, again, it really falls into my the, the sci-fi link and the yeah, yeah. sort of post-apocalyptic and all these other things. But, um, but yeah, love, love that. Again, new society starting. Mm. Everyone, half the world's gone and there's a bunch of tripods trying to or whatever, sort of animal, plant-based <laughs> creatures that are trying to blind you and eat up your nutrients. But sounds a bit like Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, <laughs> which moves on nicely to tripods and um, and dolmen. Dolmen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And that work that Colin did with Vicky Cummins. Yeah, quite a big project. And it's nice to hear a bit about dolmen because um, they're they're quite an enigmatic monument, I think, and to know that that. Did he say that monograph was coming out? Yeah, yeah. coming out soon, but certainly something he's, he's proud of. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff out, yeah, out there yeah. online. So again, really interesting bit of work and mm. worth worth looking into further. The dolmens are one of those interesting monuments in that, as we were talking earlier about hidden archaeology or under-visited, dolmen have 
because I guess they're so visible and they're they're so starkly human in a way. They there's nothing natural looking about them. They they can only have been made by people. They they feature in so much poetry and early history and early texts relating to the past before. So some of the early, um, the Mobbingon, for example, an old uh, a Welsh history um, from sort of Saxon times, I guess. I should have Googled this before we started talking about it. But they, they, they talk about like, giants building these rock structures. And mm. the, the, they've been such an inherent part of human memory for so long. And it's, it's nice that they're still this kind of enigmatic monument that people are working yeah. on and interpreting Absolutely. and trying to understand in that way. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Mm. All in all, top interview. I loved it. One I, of my favourite for a while, yeah, I'm going to be honest. Yeah, all very, very good. Um, and I mean, they obviously, all our interviews are great. Everyone is, it's like children. We love them all yeah, we as love much. Them all. <laughs> yeah. Any, yeah, I enjoyed today. Yeah, it was good bands. Um, as ever, do please check out our Patreon account. Yeah. Um, we got our first five pounds the other day. Excellent. That's exciting. Yeah, which yeah. go towards an element of a podcast. Yeah, or at least a beer before now. <laughs> it will go to an element of a podcast. Uh, uh, please do consider supporting the podcast if you can. Um, it just allows us to keep going. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, keep listening. Yeah. Keep, Send us your questions. Keep and tweeting. Uh, Monu Trumps. Yeah, Monu Trumps. Keep, <laughs> I can't believe that's sticking. Keep <laughs> tweeting them. And uh, we'll try and shout out as many as we can over the next few weeks. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Career and Ruins podcast. Please make sure that you subscribe to our downloads on whatever whatever system you receive your podcast from. Make sure you comment. Do send us any questions or thoughts you have on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We also have a Facebook page. And uh, we'll, we'll look to try and to reply to as many questions as we can, hopefully in the podcast as well. And sound production on this episode has been done by Guy from BucketofSound.com.